to be in John uh, chapter 14 this morning as we are starting a new series to give us some simple tools for proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel as we move out as a church. And I know that might be overwhelming and intimidating to some of you, and I think that's great. Because we want to be in a posture where we need to rely on Jesus, yeah? So, we're going to be in John 14. I was about 14 or 15, and I was sitting in the house of a complete stranger. And I was doing something that uh, many of you would rather die than do even for someone you know well, I was giving a gospel presentation. Um, Anybody ever, our church growing up, we did this thing called evangelism explosion. Does anybody know what that is, evangelism explosion? Okay. Um, Here's how evangelism explosion would work. Um, A a person would come to your church for the first time and they would fill something out, like a I'm new here card, or you know, back in the old school days, they had these things called pew pads, so you'd fill that out and and, you know, our youth group did it too. And so, you know, a kid would sign up, and this is my first time here, he probably did it to get like a free Gatorade, right? Sucker, right? Because a couple days later, ding dong, there's me and two of my friends and an adult leader on their front porch inviting ourselves into their house to share from memory a five-part, like, outline of the gospel with like illustrations and there's, there's cringes in the room. If this is triggering, you're in a safe space. Okay. Um, and so we would do this thing from memory and in my mind's eye, I see this again. I've never seen this kid except maybe once at my youth group. I'm talking to him. We're going through this outline from memory and in my mind's eye, I see this kid and his eye, I mean, he just looks stricken, right? Like he is begging for like a, a sinkhole to open under his house just to make this stop. And uh, so I remember leaving, and, and, and I, I did this multiple times in my high school years. And by the way, hear me, this is no hate on EE. I'm really glad I did it. Why? Because Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. And if something is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. Okay? Whether or not that was poor or not, I'm just letting you know. So we would leave, and we did this multiple times. And I remember very, very few people at the end when you would kind of ask would you like to place your faith in Jesus? Like if you die, it would end with, if you died tonight and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? Would you have an answer? Well, no. Well, would you like to have an answer? Yes. And then we'd pray with them. I'm pretty sure the people that said yes said yes because they thought it was the fastest way to like get us out of their house, right? And all sorts of people didn't ever really respond. And I don't remember ever seeing any of these people come back to our youth group, live fruitful Christian lives, And so I remember thinking, like, we're out here doing it, right? Jesus said, like, we would be rejected, and we are, right? (laughs) We are, and and the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers, and we're out here doing spiritual warfare. We're going to war against against Satan. And, And the longer I did it, I remember starting thinking, like, okay, but is this what Jesus was asking us to do? Like, when Jesus says, go and preach the gospel, is this what he is thinking? I remember thinking, Like, must we preach the gospel? Like, do we have to? And I'll tell you what, since I last welcomed myself into the living room of a complete stranger, um, Netflix has gone from a company that sends you DVDs in the mail 
to an app on my Apple TV. Uh, the iPhone was not invented yet when I last did this. And those are just like some symbols of massive cultural upheaval since I last did this. Secularism, it's the dominant way we think about the world, even here in tiny little Warren, Ohio, where everybody's a Christian, right? Everybody's like, I'm from the South, where everybody's a Christian. And I'm like, then I must be from the South, you know? Um, Syncretism, that blending of religious ideas and practices, that's how we do spirituality. Politics is our national religion, right? And this question I was asking myself, must we preach the gospel? It feels even weightier now than it did when I was a teenager. And I'll tell you what, if you're not a Christian in the room, I ask this question, must we preach the gospel? You're kind of like, yeah, really, you don't have to, right? Like, feel free not to, because if you've ever been subjected to like a gospel presentation, it's like shaming and bullying at best and like crazy awkward. Um, I mean, have you ever like found a $1,000 bill on the ground and been like, oh my gosh, and then you turn it over and it's a tract. It like explains the gospel on the back, right? Or you like asked a friend like, hey, can I have a mint? Can I have a mint? And you were like expecting an Altoid and they hand it to you, and it's got a Bible verse on it, plot twist, it's a testament. <laughs> they sold those at Bible bookstores growing up. Um, or maybe you're just driving. There used to be a person on Route 45 that would do this. They would just stand there with a sign, like, turn and burn. Turn or burn, right? Yeah, like, if you're a non-Christian in the room, like, we're laughing, but, like, yeah, it's kind of like, feel, like, go ahead, don't worry about it, right? Like, let's, let's let your truth be your truth. You do you. I'll be fine, I mean, but listen, I have been in environments where I have, I'm a Christian, right? Um, (laughs) Surprise. I'm a Christian. I've got my non-Christian friends in the room. The gospel is being presented. As I'm listening to this gospel presentation, I'm thinking my non-Christian friends couldn't care less about what's being said right now, right? Like the way the gospel is being articulated does not answer their deepest questions. And it's just so much easier for them to dismiss it. I mean, here's what I want us to consider together today is preaching the gospel with your mouth, okay? No St. Francis of Assisi, like trump card, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, preaching the gospel with your mouth to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers in this cultural moment. I want us to consider that today. I want us to consider preaching the gospel when on the surface, our culture could not be more disinterested in what we have to say. I mean, for some, we are like part of the oppressive patriarchy, right? But at the deepest levels, our culture's quest for the true, the good, and the beautiful, the true, the good, and the beautiful, are most fundamentally answered by the gospel. So I want us to think about together this morning. Uh, about 100 years ago, a French philosopher named Victor Cousin said, philosophy in all times turns upon the fundamental ideas of the true, the beautiful, and the good. Peter Kreeft in the last decade said, everything that exists is in some way true, good, and beautiful. The human experiment, the longing of every human heart is to find our way to the true and the beautiful and the good And until about like the last half century, it was taken for granted that Christianity led you to the ultimate truth, the ultimate good, that which was most beautiful. 
But the rise of science and modernism in the early part of the 20th century, followed by two world wars, followed by the sexual revolution in the middle of the century, followed by more and more progressive pursuits in our culture since then, it's left the average person, even the average Christian, with a doubt as to whether or not following Jesus will lead you to the true, the good, and the beautiful. I mean, consider for a moment truth. Christianity is no longer seen as a source of truth. It is maybe at best seen as a truth. But in a pluralistic society, Jesus is just one way up the mountain, and don't worry, we'll all get to the top eventually. His teachings can be intermixed with the teaching of Buddha, with a dash of horoscope and a little bit of Enneagram mixed in, and we're good. I saw an Instagram post uh, this week from a progressive Christian podcast, and it was a triangle, which is how we often demonstrate the Trinity. And it had all of the names in all religions and cultures for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It said, don't worry, the Trinity exists in all cultures and in all religions. The Father is just sometimes called Shiva. And the Spirit is, or the Son is sometimes the ego or, or Hermes. And the Spirit is, this was weird, you. Okay. When Jesus was on trial, uh, Pontius Pilate asked him, what is truth? And that is the fundamental question of our culture. Is truth a tool of the powerful to oppress the weak? Is truth to be weaponized against people of color, women, the unborn? Is truth to be found in the darkest reaches of the internet, the deepest bottoms of Reddit message boards? For that matter, what about goodness? The way to a good life, and by good life, I don't mean like materially comfortable, right? I mean morally upstanding. The reality is that it is no longer considered that God is part of having a morally upstanding life. Who are my Ted Lasso fans? Where are you at? Okay, Ted Lasso. Okay, well, we really need to become more culturally relevant at this church, okay? Ted Lasso, it's a story, it's on Apple TV, it's a guy from Kansas, a minor league football coach, gets hired to coach a minor league football team in Britain. Can anybody imagine why that would be difficult? Because football there is something very different than here, yeah? And so uh, what's interesting about Ted Lasso is he is a morally good character in a morally good universe without any mention of God until maybe this week's episode. But... um, He's a morally good character in a morally good universe without any mention of God. And here closer to home, the more and more I I meet young people, I do pre-marriage, I'm connected with like a lot of people from my high school, so um, I'll do their weddings. The more and more I see people, uh, we'll ask them some preliminary questions and then I'll say, so what role does like God or spirituality or or religion play into this? And, And it's not that they have a negative answer, they have no answer because it never occurred to them that their pursuit of a good, morally upstanding life would at all include God. Like, just, it's like I asked, like, I don't know, like, what color are the inside of elephants? Like, it's just something that never, <laughs> right? I mean, they, they love their spouse. They love their kids. A lot of them have them before they get married. They have a dog before they get married. They have a house. Marriage is the last thing in our culture now, right? Like, you date, like, you get engaged, you move in together, you get a dog, you get married, then you have kids, sometimes in not in quite that order, right? But um, 
And God like plays no pursuit in their love of their neighbor and their good neighbors, the love of their family, their good family members. Just doesn't figure into the calculation of morality that God needs to play a role. For that matter, beauty, I mean, as far as our culture is concerned, don't go to Christianity if you want a beautiful life because they will just repress your quest for beauty, right? Because how do we pursue beauty in our culture? Turn inward, find your deepest, truest self, your deepest, truest desire, and pursue that full tilt. And anybody that gets in the way of that is harmful to you, right? So I say from the front, you know, like, hey, we're, we're an orthodox, we, we believe in like this orthodox teaching on sexuality as it relates to homosexuality, LGBTQ questions. We're going to get into that in October. And if that sounds repressive to you, I mean, like, wait till I tell you that, like, by the way, studies are showing that more and more married couples, even here in the Midwest, are open to polyamory, right? So like inviting a third person into your marriage, right? Um, we're actually saying, no, like marriage is a covenant just between two people for life. And actually, wait till I tell you that before you get married, you're not really supposed to live together. Wait till I tell you, you're not only not supposed to live together, you're not supposed to have sex before you get married. And if you think that's repressive, wait till I tell you what Jesus has to say about your money. Right? If you want a beautiful life, if you want a life full of joy and happiness, do not become a Christian. They will repress you and oppress you We're in this moment where philosophers call these the transcendentals. They're everywhere in culture. The true, the beautiful, and the good, they are up for grabs. And the way of Jesus is not how we get to these things. And so I ask again, must we preach the gospel? You know the answer I'm going to give you, a resounding yes. Yes, and here's why. Here's why. Every single one of the biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these biographies of Jesus, every single one of them ends with Jesus commissioning his people to preach. Look at this. Let me show you these. Go and make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone, Mark 16. That's the fun one where Jesus also says, if you're bitten by snakes, they won't bother you. We should do that. We should do that sometime. This message, Luke 24, this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations. John 17, 18, this is my favorite. Jesus is praying and he says to the Father, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Jesus' fundamental assumption is that you and I would preach the gospel. His fundamental assumption is that those who claim his name would preach in the authority of that name to their friends and their neighbors and their co-workers and so on. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. Preaching the good news is not something I can boast about because I'm compelled by God to do it. I'm forced. I have no choice. How terrible for me. Woe is me, other translations say, if I don't preach the good news. He's channeling the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says it this way. If I say I will not remember him nor speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am tired of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. There is an inescapable call on our life to preach the good news. And you may not consider yourself a preacher. You may not think you know enough about the Bible. You may think your life is too messed up to do those things. 
But here's also what I know about you, you right here in front of my eyes, is that you have been transformed by Jesus too much to hide it under a bushel like we learned in Sunday school. No. Right? What I'm here to tell you today is that our cultural moment is still ripe with gospel opportunity. I love how Steph worked through Luke 10 last week. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. The issue is not the limited nature of the harvest. I think we like to tell ourselves that the harvest is limited as a way to get ourselves off the hook. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Our cultural moment It's still ripe with gospel opportunity. We just hear me, we have to listen carefully to what our culture is saying. We have to listen carefully to what our culture is saying. We need to become better missionaries, better listeners to hear what our our culture is saying, our friends and neighbors are saying, so that we can bring the good news to bear on it. So let's look together for a minute at John 14, 6. If you've been banging around the church for a minute, it's likely you've heard this. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Can we, I know this is unusual for me to do. Let's read this out loud together. It's on the screen. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. This is Jesus articulating the way to heaven. This is Jesus helping us see how the gospel is for everyone in the sense that it must be believed to be received, right? It's for everyone. It's one of the most inclusive things in the world. It's one of the most exclusive things in the world. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this passage, though, Jesus is showing us a way to communicate the gospel in a clear in a clear and compelling way for our cultural moment. It's a way that will capture the hearts and minds of our friends and neighbors because their pursuit of true, the true, the good, and the beautiful reaches its end when they meet Jesus. Hear me on this. Let me do a Matt Chandler. Look at me. Matt Chandler does this. Their quest for the good, the true, and the beautiful, your friends, neighbors, your quest for the good, the true, and the beautiful reaches its end in Jesus. Our culture is on the quest for truth, and Jesus says, I am the truth. Truth is not a thing that you go find on the internet. Truth is a person who comes and finds you. Psychologists have this helpful turn of a phrase. It's called a mental map of reality. A mental, you have one, okay? Because in your head, without thinking about it, you know how to get home, right? Have you ever, like, driven somewhere and then gotten there and you're like, I have no idea how I got here, right? Did I kill five people on the way? I don't know. <laughs> That's because you have a mental map of reality. It's, it's in your head without thinking about it. Here's what we believe about Jesus. Jesus' mental map of reality is the only accurate mental map of reality ever. How Jesus sees life, the universe, and everything is accurate. He is truth. And it's tapping into him and to his mental map of reality that gives us the only accurate, true, holistic approach 
to living life. Jesus isn't one way up the mountain. He is the way. He is the mountain, right? Truth doesn't lead us, hear me on this, truth does not lead us to militant aggression or angry condescension because the, the truth of Jesus is a sacrificial way, right? It's a sacrificial love, right? Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Truth isn't found on some obscure corner of the internet, but in Scripture, rightly interpreted along the lines with 2,000 years of Christian history. Listen, if you, you want to be a progressive, you can be a progressive. But what you have to do is buy into what's happening now and everything that comes after it, right? Like, progressivism is an endless quest, right? It's going to keep going, right? So polyamory is on the rise. Like, all of these things about gender are on the rise. Like, I'm just choosing to get off the train over here because I'm a Christian, and here's my, year, here's my boundaries, 2,000 years of interpreting, interpreting the Bible, right? Like, this is where I've just gotten off the train, is with Christianity. You can get off, you can keep going with the train, you will leave the station of Christianity behind. Progressive Christianity is almost always, John Mark Hummer says, progressive Christianity is almost always a route to post-Christianity. So I'm just getting off the train here with the historic people of Jesus, right? To a culture obsessed with goodness, to like living a good life, that's what our culture's obsession with social justice is, right? It is a quest for moral uprightness, right? Jesus shows us that he is the way to goodness. His life is the standard for and the pattern for moral uprightness. Paul says this in Romans 8. It's actually one of my favorite verses. God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of the humanity that he restored. Listen to this. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in Jesus. We see the original and the intended shape of our lives in Jesus. Jesus' life is the standard for, the pattern for, the frame for a life of goodness and thriving. It is also the way to a life of joy. Jesus does not seek to repress our desires. He wants our desires to be rightly ordered around him. That's key, right? Sin is disordered desire. It's desires out of place. And so Jesus comes to help us reorder our desires appropriately, around him, and in doing so, we experience everlasting joy, what Jesus called life and life abundant. Henry David Thoreau, the author, I think I was forced to read him at some point in high school. Uh, Henry David Thoreau wanted to find his way to life and life abundant, so he went out into the middle of the woods in a cabin for two years two months and two days by himself. And the introverts in the room were like, how do I sign up, right? <laughs> um, he, he went out to the woods because he wanted to live life and life abundant. He said, I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately on purpose. 
to confront only the essential facts of life, to see if I could learn what life had to teach so that when I came to die, I wouldn't discover I had not lived. That is our culture's greatest fear. What happens if I'm old and like 50? (laughs) I'm just telling you what 20-somethings are thinking right now. Like, what happens if I'm old and I haven't lived my life? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I may die, right? He says, Thoreau says, I wanted to live deep and suck all the marrow out of life. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only human to ever live fully alive. Jesus is the only human ever to have sucked the marrow from life, to have lived life to the hilt. If you met Jesus, when you meet Jesus, you will be struck by his joy. How relaxed he is in the world, right? I think we tend to think of Jesus as like that, very stern, contemplative, and he was. Oh, but that guy knew how to live. And so he said, I give them life and life abundant. Here's what we need today in our cultural moment to preach the gospel is a radical recommitment to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The way to truth, the way to goodness, the way to beauty. In the midst of our culture's quest for truth and goodness and beauty, in this quest for ethics and morality and justice and love and companionship, We still have a compelling message. Truth, goodness, and beauty are found in this Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father at whose right hand are truth, goodness, and beauty forevermore. No one comes to the Father except through him. The gospel we preach is still compelling to this cultural moment. We just have to learn how to be better missionaries. We have to adjust not the timeless truth of the gospel, but our practices for communicating it to meet the cultural moment. We adjust, hear me, not the timeless truth of the gospel, but how we express it to this cultural moment. Tim Keller recently said, doing evangelism today will take more patience, courage, and thoughtfulness than was needed a generation ago. Now, here's why I listen to Tim Keller. Tim Keller planted a church in Manhattan like 35 or 40 years ago. He knows what he's talking about. Doing evangelism today will take more patience, courage, and thoughtfulness than was needed a generation ago. Here's the thing. A generation ago, leaving the $1,000 bill tracked might have worked. And here's why. A generation ago, a generation or two ago, the average person had a fundamental understanding of the gospel and what it meant. So they knew, okay, God had created us, Jesus had lived, died, rose again, I have this weight of sin, and I know that Jesus is kind of the path to kind of that forgiveness and freedom that I'm looking for, but I've kind of been living in rebellion, and now I find this $1,000 bill tract, and I read it, and I'm convicted of my sin, and I start living the life that Jesus wanted me to do. 
If a person picked that up now, they would not know what any of the words on the back meant, and they would just judge Christians for being litterers. Okay? A generation or two ago, like knocking on the door of a stranger's house and presenting a five-part outline, evangelism explosion was invented in the South, right, where like drop-ins were normal. Do you know like when someone rings my doorbell and I don't expect them, I like don't move because maybe they'll hear me, you know? I, maybe a generation or two it would have worked. But now we're asking, we're answering questions that nobody's asking. You want to pray the sinner's prayer with someone so you know what that is? Heavenly Father. Okay, well, how do I know that he's a, is God a man? Does that mean God hates women? Who is God? Okay, Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. Okay, well, what is sin? And who gets to say, and I'm not that bad of a person. I've only, I've never like murdered anybody. Okay, I know I've sinned. Please forgive me. Okay, well, what gives God the power to forgive? I mean, every one of those lines, there's 27 questions. You may have those questions. And here's the good news in this, right? The good news is that if you are out there doing it, if you're out there trying, right? Kyle, I'm like, you're talking about going out and giving everybody in our neighborhoods and networks an opportunity to see you respond to the gospel. I've been doing that for like three years and it's not working. Or I've had very little fruit from it and I'm just so frustrated. And you might be thinking, maybe I'm not praying enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe if I knew more of the Bible, uh, maybe I need to armor up. I'm not doing enough spiritual warfare. Like you keep coming up with all these reasons. But maybe it's not working, not because you're not faithful, not because you're not prayerful, not because you're not wise, not because you're not biblically literate. Maybe it's not working because you're asking questions nobody, you're answering questions nobody is asking. What if it's not working because you're answering questions nobody is asking? So in the concluding moments we have together, I want to invite you into a practice. And this is where you get nervous, right? Okay, well, like, technically, if service was going to be an hour, we should probably be out of here in like five minutes. A little hungry. Some sports team I like is probably playing today. I wouldn't know. Um, uh, it's probably going to give us, like, a gospel presentation tool. It's probably going to be like circles and rhymy letters. And I just don't know if I have the ability to do this. Okay, here's your plot twist for today. The practice I want to call you in today is just what I'm calling missional listening. What one poet calls generous listening. The artist is present. I'm going to show you this picture. It was a 2010 performance art piece by a Yugoslavian artist. Her name is Marina Abramovich. And this is a picture of her performing this art in, the, in, in New York City, in the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Museum of Art. Here's what the art piece was. She would sit silently at a table and a person would come and sit across from her and she would make unbroken eye contact with them in silence for about five minutes. Over a period of three months, a thousand people came to sit across from her. People in New York City went multiple times. They got tattoos of how many times they sat with her. People would sit and weep. They would just start to cry. And the people that did it, they describe it, I kid you not, in like a conversion experience. They say it was transforming, it was luminous, it was uplifting. 
And I look at this, and against this I see this moment of constant talking. Saw somebody call it this week a blitzkrieg of words. Nobody's asking for my opinion anymore. I'm just telling you, right? It's constantly out there. And now we're like at this level of when I see you coming, I know what you're thinking. Oh, there's a person wearing a mask at church, so they must think this about vaccines and voted for this person and did that and did this and did this. And now we just all assume everybody's opinions. We all know what we're all talking about. And it's just nonstop talking, nonstop talking. And as our culture, here's my proposal to you, as our culture zigs into more talking and we try to say, but wait, I have the answer. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. As we continue to zig more toward talking, we're just adding to the noise. So before we run in with our solutions, what if as the culture zigs towards talking, we zag toward listening? Now, some of you are like, yes. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. It's never necessary to use words. I just got to listen. Cha-ching. Listen. Listen to me. (laughs) St. Francis of Assisi is quoted to have said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. He did not say that. He didn't say it. He started a, a movement of preaching, right? He would rise from the grave right now if he could. He would say, it's always necessary to preach the gospel, and it's always necessary to use the right words, right? And we figure out what the right words are by listening. By listening. Not assuming that we have the answer they're looking for and just waiting to find a gap in the conversation to strike with our five-part, 30-minute outline. Jesus was a phenomenal listener. He, by the way, he is a phenomenal listener. He could listen behind a person's words to know what was actually going on in their heart. So he's sitting at a well, and here comes a woman. It's the heat of the day. She's by herself. Starts having a conversation with her. Woman, go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. That's right. You've had four husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. And he says, let me talk to you about the living water. Why didn't Jesus, to the woman of the well, say, you are a sinner from birth, and I'm going to die on the cross and rise again, and if you put your faith in... Why does Jesus say, drink of the living water, woman, and you'll never be thirsty again? Because he's communicating the timeless truth of the gospel in a way that will meet with her deepest questions. Do you see what I'm saying? And I'm going to go kind of fast through this next part because those of you doing blessed groups, which is all of you, (laughs) will kind of go through a whole thing on listening. But I want to call us to missional listening, to generous listening, right? It's this practice where we connect the timeless truths of the gospel to our friends and neighbors' quest for truth, goodness, and beauty by listening for where their quest for true, good, and beautiful has gone wrong. You have friends that are pursuing truth and coming up more and more confused and depressed than when they started. I mean, I had people, and this is not a political statement, this is just a statement of fact, I had people in my life that had totally lost meaning on January 7th. Because they had the truth, they knew what was going to happen, and it didn't happen. 
I have people in my life, and they're trying to do the Buddhist kind of tolerant horoscope with a little bit of Enneagram, dash of Jesus kind of thing, and it's not working for them. Their quest for truth is leaving them empty. The scientists keep changing their minds. QAnon is just borrowing from like the crazy evangelical preachers who said, Jesus is coming back on this date. Oh, I got my math wrong. Now it's this date, right? Oh, now it's this date. We need a durable truth. A person wondering if their pursuit of goodness is paying off will ask you for affirmation for their bad behavior. You have coworkers that do this. I know I shouldn't have said this about that person in that meeting, but, and they're looking at you to say, it's all right, I would have done the same thing. Your friends that are social justice warriors, all jokes aside, they are exhausted because it is never, ever, ever, ever enough. We're never inclusive enough. We're never thoughtful enough. We're never making sure to give honor to everybody enough. And so there's this constant breathless posting about, I know it's Autistic Awareness Month and I know we're supposed to do the blue pumpkins, but do you know what's wrong with the blue pumpkins? Right? And then they just go, I mean, and it's just this endless quest and they're exhausted apart from the sustaining grace of Jesus. A person wondering if their pursuit of beauty will say, I thought my life would look so much differently. Because I tried match, and I tried like the farmer's one, and I tried hinge, and I still haven't met that person yet. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are, my life is not as beautiful as I thought it was. Hookup after hookup after hookup, they're, in a, they're just a husk of who they once were. These are openings to start to talk about Jesus as true and good and beautiful. We are so quick to preach the gospel, so quick to offer a solution before we've even named the problem. We're so quick to offer platitudes and half-truths, trap-truths instead of waiting and waiting for an opportunity to preach the gospel. And by the way, I am terrible at this. I am so bad at sitting still. I am so bad at staying present in a conversation and not thinking of not just the next thing I'm going to have to do, but two things after this, what I'm going to be doing. And so I say to myself over and over again, Kyle, sit still, be quiet, pay attention. Sit still, be quiet, pay attention. Silence your phone. You know what? I cannot stand. I go, to, I go meet people, and their phone, like, dings in the conversation, and, like, they look at it, and it's probably just like a Facebook notification. Or, like, I, I sit down to have coffee with somebody, and they leave their phone in the middle of the table face up. Well, clearly, I'm not having a conversation with you anymore, right? Flip the phone over. Make your settings so that if it's your spouse and you need to answer it, it buzzes and everybody else has to go off into the abyss until your time is ready, right? Um, Make eye contact. And if that's hard for you, sales secret, look right here. Make eye contact. Remember what your mother taught you. You have two ears and one mouth, right? Say, tell me more. Say, I'm sorry to hear that. Say, what do you think you need from me? Say, what do you think comes next? Be present. 
Because I think of myself walking into the home of a complete stranger, sitting down and talking, talking for 30 or 40 minutes with the occasional break to make sure they're following along, not asking of the state of their soul, not asking their heart's deepest questions, not doing the work to build relationship with them. Of course it wasn't fruitful. Were we faithful? Yes. But Jesus' desires for us to be what? Faithful and fruitful, right? We were just answering questions they weren't asking. And yet, we simply must preach the gospel. May our ears be as open as our mouths. Amen? Heather's going to come and lead us in response time. So we are going to take a few minutes and think about what we've heard this morning and how we can respond to it. Um, One of the things that I was thinking about as Kyle was preaching was I had to do an active listening training for work. And what that made me realize is just that it cannot be assumed that we know how to listen well, which is... A little crazy but um, yeah we can't assume that we are doing what we need to do to listen well we can't assume that others know how to do that and so it, it really caught my attention uh, as Kyle was saying that we're answering the wrong questions so my question for everybody here is how can we be listening for the right questions what are the questions that you think the people around you are asking, truly asking about what is good and beautiful and true? And so let's just think about that as Julia plays, and then I will pray for us. Father, we look to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. We know what we want the answer to the questions to be, and that's always Jesus. But we aren't sure how to articulate that to the specific questions that are truly around us, so we just ask for you to help us in that you bring your Holy Spirit to show us what those questions are. And we just thank you for being present, for being the best active listener that there is. It's in the name of Jesus that we can ask for this.